you should, you should never begin a sermon with a thud. I w- never went to preaching school, but I imagine if I did, I would have been told that how you start your lesson is really super important. So never, ever begin your lesson with a thud. But I never went to school, so I wouldn't know that. And so this is me beginning my lesson with a thud. Several years ago, I don't recall exactly what, but one morning I said something to Kelsey, my wife, that I shouldn't have said, and I said it in a tone that I shouldn't have said it. And the guilt just ate away at me for the whole entire morning. Um, I was fortunate to get to go home during lunchtime, and I had made up my mind that when I went home at lunch, we were going to deal with what I had said and the tone in which I'd said it. So as we sat eating lunch, I told Kelsey, I said, I'm so sorry, babe, I'm so sorry for what I said this morning and the way that I said it. Uh, Can you please forgive me? She then changed topics in the middle of our conversation and started talking about something else. Two minutes later, I then returned and said, I want to come back to what I was talking about with you earlier. I'm sorry about what I said this morning. There was then an awkward silence. And across the island in our kitchen, I could tell that she had a frustrated, slightly irritated look on her face. And then she said to me, what are you wanting me to do? Is there something you're expecting me to say? Thud. In counseling Christian couples, many will turn to Paul's words in Ephesians chapter 5 as a source for marriage guidance. Beginning in Ephesians 5 and verse 22, then spanning 12 verses, running all the way through the end of chapter 5, the apostle emphasizes the importance of husbands loving their wives and wives in turn respecting their husbands. And Ephesians 5 marriage, classic. However, this evening I would like to do something a little different. I'd like to encourage the couples with us today to actually have an Ephesians 4 marriage as well. With that in mind, we'll examine Paul's words found at the end of chapter 4, read in the scripture reading, instead of the end of chapter 5. So please join me beginning in Ephesians 4 and verse 25. Now before we dive into the text, let me begin with a quick note. As we weave our way through our words, you will notice that they do not have marriage as their context. At times you may notice they apply to Christian relationships or maybe even to all relationships with people. At other places, you may wonder if relationships are even the focus that Paul is just talking about how to live. And this is absolutely spectacular because not everybody with us tonight is married. So while we will be applying them in a marriage context, you should be able to apply them to your own unique situation, even if you're not married. So let's dive in. Paul begins in verse 25, Therefore, having put away falsehood, The word therefore tells us that what we are going to learn in the verses which follow, it all relates to what comes before. And in particular, we see that 
the relationship in the words having put away. This here is the Greek word apotithemi. When some of the Jews stone the first Christian martyr, Stephen, they take off their outer garments and put them at the feet of Saul. This action of flinging off their garments, it is called apotithemi. With all this in mind, go back with me to verses 22 to 24. Remember that, therefore. Paul is talking about what they should have learned in Christ Jesus. Let's read. To put off your old self, which belongs to your former manner of life and is corrupt through deceitful desires, and to be renewed in the spirit of your minds and to put on the new self created after the likeness of God in true righteousness and holiness. I want to highlight these two expressions here. And that first one there, to put off, that is our good friend, apotithemy. We need to take off and get rid of the old self. In our marriage context, what might that mean? Two things principally come to mind, especially for those relatively newly married. First, I must realize that I am no longer only living by myself nor for myself. Until death do you part. I has been replaced with us. And so what I do never just affects me. It affects us. My stuff is now our stuff. My money is now our money. My time is now our time. Make sure you let that soak in. My successes become our successes, and that's really fun to share together. But also my failures and my mistakes and my sins in a very real way become ours. Forward in verse 25 where we started, Paul talks about the church's interrelatedness by saying we are members one of another. In marriage lingo, though, we would say... The two have become one. Second, I must get rid of all of the bad that I've learned, put off, remember. This is especially true if you have a pathetic example of what it means to be a husband from your dad, or if you have a stanky example of what it means to be a wife from your mother. I've sat across from many husbands and many wives who got angry, or on the other side of things, they cried and mourned and grieved, at what they learned or didn't learn about marriage from the poor examples of their parents. But here's the thing that really gets them. When they then become just like dad as a husband or just like mom as a wife, are you going to break the cycle? Or are you going to continue your family's legacy of cold and lifeless marriages? Skip down to verse 31. The word here in this verse, put away, is not apotithemi, but it continues the theme nicely. With which of these do you struggle in your marriage? One of them in particular? All of them? The easy read version says in verse 31, never be bitter, angry, or mad. 
Never shout angrily or say things to hurt others. Never do anything evil. The Message Bible summarizes it in this way. Make a clean break with all cutting, backbiting, and profane talk. Make the decision right now that this stuff here will be no more. It has no place in your marriage. It's not allowed in your home. It's not permitted in the Christian's life. May God grant us all the power and the self-control and the love to put off these things. Remember back, I'm to put off the old self, modeled perhaps after janky examples throughout life, and I then am to put on the new self. Janky examples put them off. I wonder whose example I am to put on. Hmm. Chapter 4, verse 15. We are to grow up in every way into him who is the head, into Christ. Chapter 4, verse 21. Assuming that you've heard about him and were taught in him, as the truth is in Jesus. Chapter 4, verse 32. Be kind to one another, another, tenderhearted, forgiving one another, as God in Christ forgave you. Chapter 5, verse 1. Therefore be imitators of God as beloved children. Chapter 5, verse 2, and walk in love as Christ loved us and gave himself for us a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. I wonder, I wonder, I wonder what this new self looks like. So many husbands and so many wives put on their Jesus outfit when they go to work, put on their Jesus outfit when they head to church, put it back on when they are out in public. But when they pull up to the house, get out of the car, walk to the front door, just before turning the knob and heading inside, they take off the Jesus outfit, throw it over there with a pile of shoes, and then they head inside. The world gets Jesus, but Kelsey and the kids, they get Craig, full of selfishness, anger, lust, envy, and pride. If I'm not striving to be like Jesus in all my relationships, but especially those behind closed doors in my home as a parent and as a spouse, then I am no disciple of Jesus Christ. I'm a faker, I'm a pretender, I'm a hypocrite. As a fun little marriage exercise, the next time you're angry with your spouse or bitter at your spouse or unforgiving towards your spouse or you demand things your own way, read how Jesus washes the disciples' feet. Read how Jesus prays in the garden. Read how he forgives while hanging from a cross. Look at Jesus. Look at Jesus for a few minutes. Look at him, not at your spouse, not at the messy house, not at conflict. Look at Jesus. Then putting on the new self, come back to the issue at hand. Okay, with all that being said, we we come back to verse 25. Therefore, having put away falsehood, let each one of you speak the truth with his neighbor, for we're all members one of another. If this is the first lesson in our marriage class this evening, all under the umbrella of following Jesus, what do you think Paul is teaching us? It is clear that he's emphasizing the importance of truth in relationships. I can't tell you 
how many times, so, so many times, I have sat across from the troubled couple, and one of them says something like this, all that I ask above everything else is that he would just tell the truth. Or another says, just give me the truth, even if it's unpleasant. Then we can deal with it and start to put things back together and work from there. Now, did you hear the last part of that last quote? Start to put things back together. Do you hear how it tells us that truth is so fundamental and foundational in marriage? It's the starting place, the building block. We're looking at, it, at this in another way. How many of you would say that trust, that trust is one of, if not the most important need in a marriage? If you do, then you're basically saying that truth is really, really important. A marriage in which truth is lacking is already over. One or both of them just don't know it yet. Let me say that one more time. A marriage in which truth is lacking is already over. One or both of them just don't know it yet. And I know these are strong words, but let me show you why I say them. Why does Paul say we should speak the truth? For, because we are members one of another. In other words, there is connectedness and togetherness. He draws this image from the body and how, of course, the eye wouldn't lie to the hand. The eye wouldn't see a boiling pot of water or a blazing fire and then say to the hand, hey, you can touch it, hand. All is good. Why not? Because the eye is part of the same body as the hand. What hurts one member hurts every member because they're part of the same body. But what is happening in a marriage where there is no truth? where one spouse is lying to the other, he or she or both is ultimately saying, I have broken off from you. We're no longer part of the same body. That's why I say the marriage is over, long gone in fact, unless truth can be, by the grace of God, restored again. Verse 26 be angry and do not sin. Do not let the sun go down on your anger. Before Kelsey and I got married, my extended family gave us a wedding shower. And as one of the fun little things at the shower that you do, oh, yeah, they're so fun, yeah. Folks wrote down marriage advice on little slips of paper, and then later all of them were read out loud. Now, as it turns out, when it came to that time in the shower and all the slips of paper were read aloud, one piece of marriage advice, the exact same piece of advice, actually showed up four or five times. Pretty remarkable. Do you want to know what that piece of advice was? It was, never go to bed angry. Thinking back now, I wonder if uh, there was some hidden meaning in that four to five of my family members wrote that, of all things. But anyways, never, never go to bed angry. Shanti Feldhahn is a marriage researcher, and she and her husband went church to church and interviewed some of the church's most successful marriages. All in all, they conducted a thousand interviews. And over and over again, they would hear that same piece of advice from those successful couples. They would hear, don't go to bed angry. She would then ask the couple, do you ever go to bed angry? And this is the interesting thing. Almost all of them said yes. 
They did go to bed angry. Now, wait a minute. These are successful couples, and they're saying, don't go to bed angry, but they do. I just don't get it. I would guess that we would read, do not let the sun go down on your anger. In a marriage context, and we would naturally think, hey, don't go to bed angry. But look at the beginning of this verse, what's in white, be angry and do not sin. As it turns out, Paul is quoting from the Septuagint, the Greek Old Testament, from Psalm chapter 4, the fourth Psalm, verse 4. Look at that with me and prepare to be amazed. All of you do not go to bed angry people. David writes, be angry and do not sin. That's the same beginning as Paul. We're expecting David to continue, don't go to bed angry. Here's how he continues. Ponder in your own hearts, in your beds, and be silent. That's interesting. Feldhahn shares the following. She said, because in reality what these successful couples had learned is that there were times when you have two upset, exhausted, angry people who are trying to duke something out in one in the morning, and at some point nothing good is going to come from that point on, right? And then we found what I thought to be, she continued, what was one of the biggest aha moments, the most important pieces of the puzzle. It turns out the most important thing isn't what they did the night before. The most important thing is what they did the next day. It turns out that when you wake up in the morning, half the time, you kind of find that having a good night's sleep sort of solved the thing, and you wake up and you're like, what was that all about? It turns out, she continues, the most important thing isn't what they did the night before. The most important thing is what they did the next day. In reality, then, there is a benefit in waiting. And I know those are painful words to some of you in your marriages. Actually getting a good night's sleep. And then, if the issue is still there, then we'll deal with it. Verse 27, and give no opportunity for the devil. Very first roundtable panel here. Kelsey and I, I shared with you about how meaningful and impactful it was for us to acknowledge the devil's schemes, temptations, and evil work in attacking our marriage. Why is this so important? Well, two chapters later, Paul will remind the church in Ephesus that we don't wrestle against flesh and blood. We don't wrestle against other people. We don't fight against our spouses but instead the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. That would be the devil and all his angels. While this has a lot of truth to communicate, I want to again stress we fight against the devil and his demons, not against people, not against people. Why is that so important to recognize? Well, I think it's so you won't stop loving, you won't stop serving so you won't stop saving, so you won't stop wanting the best for him or for her. In my marriage, I do not fight against Kelsey. In fact, to be honest with you, Kelsey and I, we're on the same side. We are on the same team, together fighting with the Lord against the devil. But if we forget that the devil is around, then against whom are we fighting? Either against each other, or against God. In verse 27, the Greek word translated as the devil is the word diabolos. It's actually a word that just means accuser or slanderer. 
Now think about that for a moment in marriage context. Give no opportunity for the slanderer. The slanderer looks for every opportunity to blaspheme against God and to disparage the Christian faith. If our marriages lack love and faithfulness and joy and forgiveness, if Christian couples cannot even stay together, then we've given the slanderer all that ammunition that he ever needed. They, they talk about love and all that stuff, and they can't even get along the slanderer spews forth. He adds, why would anyone ever want to get married if marriage looks like that? And he points and he laughs in our direction. God ends up getting mocked. Jesus is discredited. The church is likened to the world and the institution of marriage is spat upon. If a Christian man can even love his own wife, if a Christian woman can even love her husband, then I want no part of that Christian stuff, he says. So let's give no opportunity for the slanderer. Because time is getting away from me, I'll go through these next verses relatively quickly. Verse 28, let the thief no longer steal, but rather let him labor doing honest work with his own hands so that he may have something to share with anyone in need. With our marriage glasses on, how might we understand this verse? How about in this way? The thief thinks he or she can do nothing in marriage and still expect to receive. Most applicable, I attribute this to the husband who's said nothing to his wife and children all day, who's done his own thing, and yet expects to receive when things move to the bedroom that night. Some of y'all be, be hating over the last four years or so on people who've been abusing the COVID system not working when they're fully capable, just chilling at home and still getting paid. But some of y'all be doing the exact same thing in your marriage, getting welfare from your wives or food stamps from your husbands. A good marriage takes labor and honest work from both of you. If you're not actively working and moving towards each other in marriage, then you're drifting apart. Doing nothing is the thought of the thief the way the thief thinks. And eventually, the funding for your marriage benefits is going to run out. Verse 29, let no corrupting talk come out of your mouths, but only such as good for building up as fits the occasion that it may give grace to those who hear. If what you're going to say is rotten or putrefied, then don't say it. Instead, use edifying, uplifting, and encouraging speech. One thing I would really like to stress is this line here as fits the occasion. In the marriage context, this shouts to me, I am actively, I am intentionally looking for opportunities to use grace-filled words which affirm and lift up. You notice something out of the ordinary that your husband's done? Express thanksgiving. Or you, you notice something that your wife is always doing? Show gratitude. Kelsey reminded me of something just the other day from years ago that I did that meant a lot to her. I had forgotten about it, but, and to be honest, I don't do these things nearly enough, these kinds of things. Over the course of several days, I would send her random texts telling her how beautiful she is. Only I would use words that were synonyms for beautiful, like ravishing, resplendent, and pulchritudinous. Pretty sure Andrew Newman would be proud of, of my dictionary usage. 
it was something simple and relatively easy for me. It, it took a, a few seconds each day, but she remembers it still years later, five, six, seven years down the road, something like that. And so as fits the occasion, maybe that can also mean just because, just because, because there's never a bad time to express love. Verse 30, we are told to not grieve the Holy Spirit of God. In the marriage context, I ask you, whose feelings matter most? Whose feelings matter most? Yours, your spouse's, or God's? This here tells me to consider God's feelings, if we can use human terms, in all things. Verse 31, we've already discussed. Verse 32, in closing, be kind to one another, tender-hearted, forgiving one another as God and Christ forgave you. This last part, this is perhaps the number one characteristic of Christian marriage. The reason I say that this is that a Christian marriage will still, even on occasion, have all that stuff back in verse 31, the nasty stuff, the anger, the clamor, all that. Being mean to each other, a husband and wife hurting each other, it's going to happen in every marriage from time to time. But in the Christian marriage, there can be forgiveness. And it's not because your spouse deserves it, and not even because of how good and noble you are, but instead because of how Christ, how God in Christ has forgiven you. And so here we are again. As we started, so we end. All roads lead back to Jesus. And so there was Kelsey with a frustrated and slightly irritated look. And after an awkward moment of silence, she asked me, what do you want me to do? Is there something you're expecting me to say? That's a true story. And I don't remember how the rest of it went. But if I could rewind the clock, you know how I would answer that question? I would tell her, Kelsey, my wife, what I would love more than anything in the world is for me to come up to you, get down on one knee right now, you to place your hand on my head and say to me, Craig, my beloved husband, I completely and totally forgive you of all wrong. And from this moment on, you and me are together again in the best of ways. To be, that, that's what I want. I, I, I want that. If you could take notes, babe, please, please note that. <laughs> if it ever happens again. What I'm trying to express to you is that I wanted a moment, a singular defining moment that became crystal clear that me and her were good again. I didn't want ambiguity or confusion or awkward. I just wanted to know, man, from here on, we're good. I needed that single moment. Wouldn't it be nice if God and his wisdom gave us that single defining moment that we could know everything between him and us, it was all good again. It's funny, for the last 2,000 years, people have tried to invent that moment. They've said it's asking Jesus into your heart 
or reading this prayer that's on the screen before you. But I think God got it right the first time. He knows we need that moment, and he said, this is the moment I'm going to give you. It's going to be you go down into these waters, you are buried, and you are raised again. And when you do that, you come in contact with the blood of my son. You are forgiven completely and totally. And from this moment on, you and me are right again. God, you are so wise for giving us that moment. And why are we trying to invent and create and do something different than the moment already given to us by him? This evening, if you are not baptized into Christ Jesus, what are you waiting for? That clean slate can start right here, right now. And so if you need to come to him, or if you are a Christian, that defining moment is you coming and confessing your sins and knowing he's faithful and just to forgive you. That moment can happen for you right here, right now, tonight. If you have a need, come to Jesus right now as together we stand and sing. Calling now for thee, though you've wandered so far from his presence, come today, hear his loving voice.